Wow, did you enjoy singing this morning? That was awesome, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for that scripture reading. And, and Jeff, thank you for leading us through scripture this morning for the Lord's Supper. Charles, thank you for your beautiful prayer. And Ben, thank you, thank you, thank you for singing, leading us in singing this morning. That was really great. Uh, again, want to say welcome to everyone that is streaming with us right now. It's so great for us to be back all together this first Sunday in April. My name is Mark. If you're visiting with us today, I'm one of the staff ministers here. We never had a chance to meet or we've never met face to face. Uh, I'd like to have that opportunity today. And so I'm going to be out by the green wall at the end of the assembly this morning. Please come by. Let's introduce ourselves to each other and take a moment to, uh, to get to know each other. Also, I would invite you to take the insert out that says Growing in Grace. Uh, on one side, MPG on the other, it's inside of the bulletin. Take that out. One side is to follow along the sermon as we go through this series of messages on God's grace. The other side is the MPG. We're going to give you something to memorize, M, something P to pray about this week, and then the G is glorified. We're going to give you some activities to do this week as it pertains to the message. Uh, you'll remember this last week, uh, right in the middle of uh, telling the story at the 1030 assembly, which is one that we stream, it dawned on me while I'm talking about doing a 720 on the ice with a friend of mine in a car back in 1979, a car ending up in a snow pile. It dawned on me in the middle of telling that story that my mother had never heard that story. <laughs> so at 1133, she had streamed us that morning. At 11.33, I get a text from Mom. <laughs> well, my son, that was a surprise. <laughs> Probably better to hear it now, knowing you're fine. Love you. It was funny, while you are telling this, I kept thinking, I don't even remember this. I don't remember this. And you're grounded for a month. <laughs> and don't ask for the keys. <laughs> in the beginning, the gracious God created the dazzling heavens and the amazing earth, right? On earth, God created this beautiful, dynamic garden, and there God placed the very first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And the creation with all of its plant life and animal life and everything was working according to the nature and the laws of God. Creation was this magnificent gift. And as you know, there was only one rule. There was a time in which there was only one rule on planet Earth. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, read this. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat. You are free to eat, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here's the scene in the garden. There are a lot of yes trees, and there's only one no tree. There's a lot of eat trees, but there's only one do not eat tree. And so as God is being revealed in the beginning chapters of Genesis, what we see God revealed as is maximum love and minimum law. Maximum love, all of the grace, all of the gifts, all of creation before we were even created, and minimum law. There was only one rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But quickly, in the narrative of Genesis, you know that there came a, mo a moment of distrust, which led from distrust to disobedience, and from disobedience to death. Sin, ruptured creation, 
Death has invaded creation. Sin and death have turned the world upside down, including the way that we see God. And so, instead of it being maximum love and minimum law, the way that God is viewed today is this. Maximum law and minimum love. Meaning that the, 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 one of the predominant views of God is that God is out to get me. One of the predominant but mistaken views of God today is that God is the great killjoy in heaven. He's just watching to catch me do something wrong and then he's going to zap me. Now, this is not only a, a, a vision or a, view, a world view of God, a perspective of God in the culture at large. But unfortunately, it is a view that way too many Christians have today. Now, there is another view of God that is erroneous as well. It's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, which I'm going to be talking about in the coming weeks. But the reason that we need to grow in grace, and this is a verse that we find in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is because of this, this erroneous view of God. And so at the back of the New Testament, we find this little verse. It tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must grow in grace if we're going to be the body of Christ. We must grow in grace for the sake of the world. And we must grow in grace for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ who love Christ, but they are caught in a legalistic faith. A faith that is joyless and shaky at times, and anxious and uptight, and more times than not judgmental. Friends, the good news is not that you can be saved. Every religion and philosophy in the world teaches some form of salvation. You do X, Y, and Z, and you'll make it to Valhalla, or you'll make it to Nirvana. Friends, the good news is not that you can be saved. The good news is that you are saved by grace. That is the good news. Amen? And that brings us to one of the best-known passages on God's grace in the New Testament, in the Christian Scriptures. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Now, twice in these ten verses, Paul is going to say these words, It is by grace that you have been saved, in verse 5 and verse 8. And then in verse 7, he's going to define or he's going to describe the grace of God this way. He's going to call it the incomparable riches. That's what God's grace is to us. His incomparable riches. Do you think about the doctrine of God's grace or the fact of God's grace or the gift of God's grace as a doctrine to you as a treasure? It's a treasure. Grace is a treasure that we need to know. And in these two verses, he says a lot. Thank you, Larry, for doing such a beautiful reading of that scripture. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to give you two main ideas to wrap your mind around when it comes to God's grace in the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. Number one, God's grace is indispensable charity. God's grace is indispensable charity. Now, the word grace means what? Gift, right? Which is true because it's free. A gift, by definition, is free. I mean, if somebody gives you a gift, it stops being a gift if you have to pay for it, or if you, have to, you feel like you have to earn it. By nature, a gift is free. But there is more to God's gift than just being free. It is, in a manner of speaking, a charity. A charity defined this way. God's grace, or charity, is... We'll go to the next slide, please. 
Charity is love in crucial actions that rescue. Charity is love in crucial actions that save or that rescue. Now, I have, over the last 30 days, as you have been paying great attention, not just to the details of the war in the Ukraine, but especially the plight of the Ukrainian refugees and the plight of the children and the moms who have crossed the border into Poland and some of the surrounding nations. Mothers and and children arriving in in Poland with, with nothing, knowing no one, no place to go, no connections, and no idea what to do next. And then in the middle of that desperate strait, the Polish people taking them in, opening the doors to their homes to strangers, opening their wallets to supply food, and opening their arms as a refuge from the danger. Now here's the thing. Without the indispensable charity of the Polish people, the refugees that are moving out of that war, trying to find some kind of refuge, those refugees would be dead in the water, no place to go, no one to turn to if it wasn't for the charity. And what these refugees are receiving is more than free, more than a gift. It is an indispensable charity. It is love and crucial actions that comes to rescue them in their moment of profound and deep and utter desperation. Now, in the same way, in the same way, God's grace is an indispensable charity. That is, it is a crucial and a vital action. It is a crucial and a vital gift that without it, you and I are dead in the water. It doesn't matter how much good we do, how many times we're baptized. If God does not choose that there can be salvation in Christ, we are dead in the water because of sin. Now, this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul says. Now, you know, today we don't like to be very blunt. And if we're blunt, you know, we sometimes get into a lot of trouble in you know, social media and places like that. But Paul is as blunt as it comes when it comes to describing our spiritual plight. He says in the very first verse, as for you, you were, you were what? Dead. You're dead. In your transgressions and in your sins, you're dead. Now, this is so simple and, and really it's sort of insulting to say, but all of us know that there's a gigantic difference between being alive and being dead. Yes? There's a huge difference between being alive and being dead. You'll remember the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride? I mean, it's kind of an old movie, but I I think it's still around. Most people have seen it. There is a scene in which uh, a swordsman by the name of Inigo Montoya uh, brings the wounded hero, Wesley, to a guy by the name of Miracle Max, who's played by Billy Crystal. Montoya thinks that Wesley is dead, and he tells Miracle Max so. He says, Wesley is dead. And Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, I mean, you get the idea of this character. He goes, woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. If somebody's slightly alive, there's a lot of things you can do. But if somebody is mostly dead, there's only one thing you can do. And Montoya says, what? And he goes, just go through their pockets for loose change. (laughs) In the weird world of Miracle Max, and in his crazy way, he's right. 
There are degrees of being alive. There are degrees of being alive, but not with being dead. Slightly alive with the right kind of care can become mostly alive. And so Paul is being pretty blunt to, blunt to capture our attention here. We are dead. We are dead. Spiritually speaking, we are dead because of sin. Now, we may look alive to other people, but we are dead to God. Dead to God. And because we are dead, we are helpless to do anything for ourselves. Why? Because we're dead. What we need is the gift of life that comes from another. And this is part of the good news that Paul is going to share in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, say it with me, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. So here's the big question. How do you save someone who is dead? The answer is you bring them back to life. But because we are dead, it has to be by grace. It has to be a gift. And realizing that, grace becomes not only something that's indispensable to us, we got to have it. There's no chance. We're dead in the water without it. It it is indispensable to us, but at the same time, it becomes life-changing. Second point, God's grace is radically transformative. God's grace is radically transformative. When we begin to understand grace, it becomes not merely something that we can't live without, but when we begin to grow in our understanding, we, we deepen ourselves in our understanding of what grace is, the cost of grace, all of these different kinds of aspects of the doctrine of grace, it radically changes who we are at the very center of our lives. Let me show you how Paul does this in Ephesians 2. In verses 4 through 6, notice what he says. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So part of the thing that grace does is to make us alive. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you have been saved. And then, third verb, God raised us up with Christ. And then, or excuse me, the second verb. Third verb is, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. Notice all these three verbs are a part of the gift of God's grace to us, alive with Christ. Now, most people in the world think that the human beings are on this non-negotiable track or, or direction or trajectory in life that is, you know, I'm, I'm born and I'm alive and I'm moving towards death. Death is the non-negotiable. Not true if you're a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Not true if you have received with open hands and an open heart the gift of God's grace. What that grace does, the present, the gift that God gives you in Christ Jesus, is to flip the narrative. Your story now is moving from death and sins and transgressions to life. The second thing is He raised you up with Christ. It's not yet literally resurrected. But we are so connected with Christ that if He was raised, then so are we. Which means that even now, before we face our own physical death, we have overcome death. And then the third thing is that He seated us with Christ. And again, not literally at this moment in heaven, per se, but leaning into God's future. And one of the things to notice about all three of these verbs here in verses 4, 5, and 6 is that they're all in the past tense. 
Paul is writing to disciples of Jesus and saying, this is yours right now. This is something that's already a fact in your life. Now, I was listening to a, a sermon uh, sometime back by Tim Keller on grace, and he makes this wonderful, wonderful statement about how grace is defined in Ephesians 2, and he says it this way. We get everything he deserves because he got everything that we deserve. That's what grace is. You know what grace is? Grace is getting everything that Jesus deserves because he got everything that we deserve. That's how grace is God's goodness for the good of human beings. In Jesus, in love, in love, Jesus literally and physically died on the cross to pay the debt, to pay the crime, to pay the guilt for our sins. Our sins were put on Him on the cross, and what we got in return from Him was His righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus went to the place of God-forsakenness where our sins would have taken us. Jesus is the one who has paid the great cost of our sins so that we can get the great gift of life that was His. And when you begin to allow that to sink in, you're never the same. During the pandemic, uh, a woman who had heard me a couple of times on the radio showed up late in the afternoon and she was distraught and she was anxious uh, messed up on some relationships uh, and and was basically messed up on the relationships because messed up on love and so we spent part of that afternoon talking about the true nature of love and and, and what that looks like and you know love so much of the time in our culture is you know I love you to this point but no further or I love you for what I can get out of you. But love, as it, it's biblically defined, is a love that goes all the way until death do we part, right? And I said, you know, uh, my wife and I have been married about 39 years, and I know she loves me. I'll tell you something else I know about her. And I've told you this, this I've given you this illustration before. I, I know that I could do probably the most horrendous thing, the most heartbreaking, the most crushing thing to her, and she would not leave me. And she could say the same thing. She could do absolutely the most heartbreaking, heart-crushing thing to me. And I would not leave her. So the point of that is this. Because that's true, because she loves me that much, Am I just going to put that love to the test every which way I can and just, you know, do whatever I want because I know she's never going to leave me? Or am I going to try to live a life that's worthy of that love? And that is how the love of Christ becomes radically transformative to us. We know that we are loved with an all-surpassing love. We know because we have already put it to the test that we have broken the heart of God, that we have, we have broken our Father's heart, and yet He is still there. Hebrews chapter 13, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. His Son died on the cross for us. Does God's great love, does God's great gift, does God's great grace melt you? God's grace for you and for me is the end of accusation. 
It's the end of accusation because Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. God's grace is the end of judgment because our sins have been nailed on His cross. God's grace is the end of condemnation because we are cherished and loved in Christ, regardless of what we have done. And all of a sudden, as we begin to see the greatness of God's love as it's poured into our heart through the Spirit, grace is God's goodness for the renovation of humans. And quite frankly, church, mean Christians and grouchy Christians and stingy Christians and grumpy Christians and especially self-righteous Christians, those are all oxymorons with emphasis on the moron. I didn't say that. Did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to. Grace. (laughs) Two things closing. Grace awakens joy. Every day you wake up, you are a recipient of God's indispensable, indispensable charity. You are uh, a trans, radically transformed by God's love because there's not a moment of your life, there's not a single molecule of air that you breathe that you're not breathing in God's grace. That's how you live. And grace awakens joy. When grace comes to you, it says that you are a sinner but you're cherished and loved and forgiven, given a new life that stretches into forever. And then secondly, not only does grace awaken joy, but grace awakens peace. For it is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Turn to the person next to you and say, we're we're saved by grace through faith. Say it to the person next to you. And you know who gets the glory for that? This is not from us. This is not from us. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You know, people that boast, they boast a lot of the time because they don't feel accepted. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to more, 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 more. And that's one of the reasons why they boast. When we realize that we are loved this way and the love goes all the way down, not just you know, to the tips of our fingers, but it goes all the way into the inside the very most interior part of our soul, and we realize that the one that created the heavens and the earth and everything in between is also the one that to this day loves us and is providing for us and is saving us not only from ourselves, but saving us into relationship with Him, then we realize that all of this earning and all of this boasting and all of this has just come to an end because we're the children of God. We're the body of Christ. We're loved with an unbelievable, indescribable love. It comes to us like an incomparable richness of treasure and as a reason to praise God. And if you want to become a disciple of Jesus today, we would love to share that information with you. See me at the green wall. Come down to the front after the sermon or during the singing of this song, and we'll talk to you about how that can happen today. But that's praise God because of His great grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Let's stand and sing.